Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is the 26th of October. It's Tuesday. And in today's briefing, we're looking at a problem that could ruin Christmas. It's the global microchip shortage. This is a crisis that really came on slowly and then suddenly because there were some shocks last year because of the pandemic. Orders got cancelled or orders got advanced. Everyone needed a new laptop because they were working from home and a better webcam. The microchip and semiconductor shortage It didn't stop after COVID. The problem that affects so many products we use could push into next year. Some of it will be in automobiles. Some of it's going to be in high-end video games or in graphics cards. Some of it will be in new models of computers being pushed out to either later this year or next year. Yeah, the global microchip shortage and how it might affect your Christmas. That is our briefing in the second half of the episode. First, we've got the headlines with Annika Smethurst, but I, I guess, Annika, you're a bit of a headline yourself today because um, sad news, you're going to be stepping back in your role as a co-host of The Briefing for quite an exciting reason. Yeah, following you, Tom, we're (laughs) also having a baby. Must be something in the water here, (laughs) The Briefing. Amazing. Doesn't, not really conducive to getting up early in the morning, so I'll hopefully be jumping in to do some stuff during the election, but uh, stepping back from that daily 4.30am start for a little bit. Oh, congratulations. That is really beautiful news. You've you've had a crazy few years and, and that is just such a pure piece of positivity right there. <laughs> Thanks. I can say that firsthand knowing the feeling. Um, we're, we're having a beautiful time with our little baby as well, despite some of the gruelling um, settling <laughs> and feeding and, and all of that that comes with it. But um, that's amazing. So we're still going to speak to you, especially during the federal election campaign next year. So um, briefing listeners, if you're crying into your wheat bix right now, Annika won't be completely disappearing from the briefing. Um, we'll still get her great analysis, which we love having part of this show from time to time. Let's do our last headlines together. The government will review the impact of its net zero targets on regional Australia, but has so far stayed pretty tight-lipped about the deal it made with the National Party to secure the policy. The first uh, rule of Fight Club is not to talk about Fight Club. Well, your government certainly is a Fight Club. There's no doubt about that. (laughs) So that's National Senator Bridget McKenzie clashing with Labor's Murray Watt in Senate estimates yesterday. Now, I saw in a great um, news package on the ABC from Andrew Proben last night, he pointed out that the seventh rule of Fight Club is that fights go on as long as they have to. And I think that's a pretty good prediction on climate policy because there's still some nationals with plenty of fight, like Matt Canavan, the Queensland senator. I'm just going to keep up the fight for the blue-collar workers. Pursuing this green fantasy is only going to end in tears. Overnight, Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, had a very different reaction. He described Australia's net zero decision as heroic. Now, as I said, we still don't know all of the deal that the nationals and the bigger coalition, the Liberals, sorted out to get this policy through but some things are coming out. One of them is that Productivity Commission review that every five years they will look at the impact this policy is having on regional communities and it also looks like they got that extra seat in Mm. Cabinet, Tom. Yeah, you predicted that yesterday, so it's interesting. It's the Resource Minister, Keith Pitt, who's been elevated into Cabinet. Now, he seems to be one of the nationals that was pushing back on net zero, so that's quite interesting. A bit of tension there, I imagine. Yeah, he's been a cabinet minister before and he was dumped. After that recent reshuffle, they've got an extra seat at the table, but the extra seat has gone to somebody who's not that keen on net zero. 
And a third senior colleague of the former New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, has told ICAC she should have disclosed her relationship with the former Wagga MP, Darrell Maguire. Uh, this time, it was the former Deputy Premier, John Barillaro. I, in one way, could argue that I had a conflict of interest if I had known there was a relationship. So there is a ripple effect of conflicts uh, that we would have had to manage. That was John Barillaro speaking at the corruption hearing in Sydney. This comes after former Premier Mike Baird and current Minister Stuart Ayres made similar statements during last week's hearings. The inquiry is examining whether Berejiklian breached the public's trust or encouraged corrupt conduct and whether the relationship influenced her decision to fund two projects in the Wagga electorate. And Gladys Berejiklian herself um, will take the stand later this week, she's denied any allegations of wrongdoing. There's confusion over the Australian Open vaccination policy. Last week, the Victorian Premier and Federal Immigration Minister said unvaxxed players would not be issued visas to enter Australia, but a leaked email from the Women's Tennis Association to players has said unvaccinated competitors can enter Australia as long as they do two weeks in hotel quarantine. Yeah, and so then the Victorian Sports Minister, Martin Bakula, also left the door open to unvaccinated players playing at the Australian Open. We're still talking to the Commonwealth about whether the rule for international uh, international unvaccinated arrivals is either 14 days quarantine or they're not coming into the country at all. We don't expect that to be settled for another couple of weeks. That was Sports Minister Martin Bakula on 3AW there. The hotel quarantine loophole would open the door for players like world number one Novak Djokovic, who has so far refused to reveal whether he is vaccinated, to compete in the Open in January. And Tom, it will affect a lot of players because at the moment the estimated vaccination rate amongst professional tennis players is only between 60 and 65%. Yeah, so what do you make of these mixed messages from inside the Victorian government? It was quite strong of both the federal and state government, I thought, not to issue visas. They'd made it clear that for regular travellers, if they want to come to Australia, you have to have a vaccination to avoid hotel quarantine. But if you've had either a vax that our country doesn't recognise or you aren't vaccinated, you can come. You just have to do the two weeks Mm. in quarantine. Now, that seems to be a more fair rule than what they're saying for the tennis players who they won't even issue visas to if they're not vaccinated. But I'd be surprised if they kept strong on this one. The tennis is a very big event for Melbourne and uh, it sounds like their policy is falling apart. Yeah, it seems like it goes too far. I mean, there are ways of managing COVID risk. We're not in the COVID zero environment anymore. We don't need to be so hard line. And for these international sporting events, which I imagine uh, Victorians are very keen to hang on to, it puts them at odds with other international events. So Djokovic, for example, has played the US Open, Wimbledon, the French Open. It's a pretty weird look if he can't come to Australia for our tournament. And then you've got to wonder what happens with the Grand Prix in Melbourne. What if there's a a substantial proportion of those drivers who don't want to be vaccinated and they can't come to the country, um, that would create massive problems as well. So surely they need a way through this. I think when we hear politicians speak, we have to hear how their message is being received. And the fact that we've got the federal government, a coalition government, and the Labor government in Victoria on the same page here, I actually think it'll be quite a popular policy though, and they wouldn't be doing it for any other reason. I did hear Dan Andrews say yesterday that if all the ball kids, all the umpires, all the spectators have to be vaccinated, why not the tennis players? And I do think there'll be a lot of support for that. 
The British government's resisting calls to bring back mask and work from home mandates to combat rising COVID cases in what's being dubbed Plan B. UK authorities last month suggested the measures could be brought in to protect the country's health service from unsustainable pressure as they approach winter. Yeah, the opposition and a number of health experts are calling for these tougher measures to be brought in ahead of Christmas as daily cases top 40,000. The government say their modelling shows that uh, the cases are going to start declining, though. So a lot of eyes on the UK because they, they went hard and went early on opening up. And world leaders have called for the release of Sudan's civilian leaders following a coup in the Central African nation overnight. A leading general has reportedly dissolved a governing council designed to divide power between civil politicians and the military, saying infighting between politicians is behind the decision. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is among those urging military leaders to release the country's Prime Minister as protesters take to the street across the country. All right. Well, that is the headlines for today. And um, yeah, a really huge thank you for working with us over the last 18 months to launch the briefing, Annika, and make it what it is and to build build our audience and for all the insight on the run, even in the early mornings when it's hard to think straight sometimes, you've been able to see through so many issues for us and give us the the inside oil on what's going on. It's been a joy, except for the early mornings, and it doesn't sound like they're going to stop for me, but <laughs> that's okay. All right, Jan Fran's about to join us as we look at the semiconductor shortage. Hello, it's Jan Fran, and Christmas is upon us. Yes, we're talking about this in October because you might need to do a little bit of planning in the lead up to this Christmas. If you are thinking of getting a PlayStation or an iPhone or even a new car, mm, that might not happen thanks to a global chip shortage. Yeah, microchips are in high demand but low supply and basically everything has a chip in it now, doesn't it, Jan? It sure does, which is why some car companies have halted production. Um, Apple has flagged that it might limit production of the iPhone 13. Sony says that it expects massive supply issues with its PlayStation 5 as well. That's a clincher, isn't it? You can't get your PlayStation for Christmas. (laughs) What is going on, Tom? Could this year get any worse? I know. We have really struggled. What's fascinating about this to me is that this is still going on this problem and it's going to push way beyond this immediate COVID period because it started during COVID, as we'll find out. But unlike, say, the toilet paper panic buying, this has become a problem that's stretching out way out into the future. Yeah, and Mark Pesci is a tech expert. He is here to explain to us exactly what is going on. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. The chip shortage. Talk us through it. So, as we know, chips are in almost everything that gets manufactured. And at this point, there is more demand for chips globally than there is our ability to manufacture them. And this is a crisis that really came on slowly and then suddenly because there were some shocks last year because of the pandemic. Orders got cancelled or orders got advanced. Everyone needed a new laptop because they were working from home and a better webcam. And so all of these sort of collided to accelerate something that was probably already baked in, which is that we haven't been building enough semiconductor plants to manufacture all of the chips that we actually need. Okay, can you clarify what the difference is between a semiconductor and a chip? 
<laughs> so a chip is really just a shorthand phrase for a semiconductor. A semiconductor is, of course, the silicon that chips are built on. And we call these chips because we basically make big platters of them and then slice them up into tiny little chips that then become the integrated circuits that go into your smartphone or your laptop or whatever. Right. Where do they come from? The semiconductors are made in what we call fabrication plants. And this is where you take basically plates of pure silicon, and that silicon is grown. It's a giant crystal that's grown. It's then shaved into these little plates. And then these plates go through a plant. Essentially, you can think of it as if you think of old school photography where you'd shine a photographic negative onto a plate to get an image onto it. It's kind of like that, but much smaller and much more sophisticated. These chips go through the plant, and as the light shines on them, transistors are etched into the silicon plates. And at this point, these transistors are now so small that you can fit a few billion of them into an area the size of your fingernail. So these plants are very sophisticated and they're very expensive. To build a new semiconductor plant costs around $10 billion. Wow. So what do chips actually do? What role do they play in a device? Mm. So all of the thinking that your smartphone does, whether that's talking to the network to get data to and from the network, whether it's to draw things onto the screen, whether it's the logic behind the game that you're playing or the chat app that you're using, all of that is happening inside the transistors that are inside the silicon chips. So really, you have to think of it as this is all of the infrastructure that does all of the thinking, all of the computer thinking for us is happening on those chips. When it's working through its binary-based algorithms, it's doing all the math on those algorithms. Yes, all of the programs, all of the algorithms are happening in the transistors that are etched onto these chips. Okay, so is this a shortage of silicon or is this a shortage of semiconductor plants that process the silicon and turn them into chips? It is very much a shortage of the plants that turn these semiconductors into chips. And again, this shortage has probably been building for about a decade. The companies that make these chips have probably underinvested in the long term. And it's one of these things that you don't notice it until there's a couple of small shocks and then the problem becomes really apparent. And the way we know that was the problem is because we saw half a trillion dollars in committed investment now entering the market. The Koreans have popped in about $400 billion. The Americans allocated $52 billion, and the Taiwanese have allocated $100 billion. That's just in the last month to solve this problem. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to play a game of catch-up. The problem being that it takes about four years to build a semiconductor plant because they are so complicated, so sophisticated, and so devilishly hard to get working right that even with all of this money on the table, it's going to take years until those plants start producing chips. Right. So you've, I know you've written about building semiconductor plants saying that the best time to build them was probably five years ago. Why has everybody dropped the ball on this given that we use chips so much in everything that we do? Like you'd think that they'd have the foresight to build more plants, right? You would think. One of the other problems is that historically, this is over the last 60 years that we've been making chips, it has very much been a boom and bust industry. And there are a couple of times in the last 30 years that whole tranches of chip makers were basically run out of business because they overproduced or made the wrong kind of thing. And that's made the existing ones, the ones who are still around, a little bit more conservative than they probably should have been. So when they did their forward planning, they invested 
a lot less in new plant than they needed to. And they did that year after year after year. The way that I'd heard about this was people not being able to buy new cars and the fact that mm-hmm. now some secondhand cars are selling for more now than they did when they were new. Is that the main way it's affecting people's day-to-day lives? Yeah, there's going to be interesting shortages. So yeah, some of it will be in automobiles. Some of it's going to be in high-end video games or in graphics cards. Some of it will be in new models of computers being pushed out to either later this year or next year. So a lot of this is going to be things that don't happen. So they're essentially invisible to people. But there are other things, again, like new model cars, particularly the high-spec models, which tend to have more chips in them. The production lines for those cars are mostly idle right now now waiting for more chips. Yeah, I mean, what flow-on effect does that have? Are we going to start to see people being laid off? Because this does seem to be a, a pretty significant problem, particularly for car manufacturers in the US. When those lines go idle, those workers go on furlough. So we're already seeing some layoffs. We already know that when there isn't new computers out there, people aren't buying software or using services with those new computers. And so there are clearly knock-on effects. It's one of the things that acts as a break on the economy. And as we're coming out of the pandemic, we don't want to see those breaks, right? Because we're trying to get everything back up to speed. But we're seeing that all of the shortage is basically producing a global slowing of the economy. So is it now catching up? or is the problem still actually getting worse? Is the gap between supply and demand still widening? You ask a very good question. I don't think anyone really has the full answer to that yet. One of the things we did see, just as was ha- what happened with toilet paper during the worst days of the pandemic, is that a lot of companies overordered the chips they needed because they were worried about not getting the chips that they needed to keep their production lines running. And so some of that actually made the shortage worse than it should be. But we're still going to be in this period where essentially demand is still going to be greater than capacity. And that will probably be true until around the middle years of this decade when all of these new semiconductor plants start turning out chips. Okay, how will the average person in Australia feel this? Like because I've been hearing about this for months now. Everything seems relatively the same for me. i Buy a new a, laptop. I bought a new laptop. That was fine. I did yeah. it like how I would have normally done it in 2018 or whenever. Mazda 3 is still driving okay? Yeah, <laughs> that one's from 2009, so <laughs> we don't have to worry too much about that. But how is the average person in Australia going to be feeling this? So it's clearly going to keep prices higher than they would have. Again, I mean, you're talking about the price of used cars. This is true globally as well. The price of used cars in America has shot up because newer cars are less available. Prices for electronic air are going to be more expensive than they would be. A lot of these chips are essentially sold at auction prices. And so when there's greater demand, those prices will tend to go up so manufacturers can get the supply that they need. Some things will be either unavailable or very difficult. If you ask anyone who's trying to buy, say, a PS5, you can tell that they have to wait weeks to months for that to happen. So there's a range of ways that we think about how this is going to touch. But the overall thing is that it's actually going to tend to increase increase prices and slow the economy at least a little bit. We have touched on the doom and gloom there. I wonder if there are any opportunities to come out of this. Like, should we be getting into the chip business? Can Australia build a semiconductor plant? 
You know, it's funny because I talk a lot with my venture capitalist friends around this. And the thing is, table stakes for building one of these plants is $10 billion. We have the talent in this country to be able to do it. And we have some of the best chip designers. But what we do is we take our chip designs and then send them to Taiwan or to Korea or to America to actually have those chips made. And we can say, look, that's fine. It's our intellectual property. We're turning it into chips. That's good. Maybe in terms of national security, because it is important for a country to be able to manufacture some of its own chips. Maybe we want to have a nice fabrication facility here. Maybe we go and talk to the Koreans or we talk to the Taiwanese and ask them if we want to co-produce a plant. My feeling is that's a good investment for our future, but it's a lot of money. Who is making money out of this? Who's profiting from this? (laughs) Pretty much anyone who is making chips right now is printing money because there's just unconstrained demand for chips. So the biggest chip maker in the world, TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, they make all of the chips in every iPhone and in all the Apple computers, all the new Apple computers, all of those chips are TSMC chips. They're making money hand over fist. And this is one reason why they felt quite comfortable basically putting $100 billion in capital allocation over the next couple of years to build out their plants because that will basically allow them to double or triple the amount of money they can make. Good for them, hey? Yeah, good for them. (laughs) I was going to say, some people profiting, other people going to have to wait ages for a PS5. Swings and roundabouts. (laughs) That was Mark Pesci. He hosts a tech podcast called Next Billion Seconds, and he did a four-part series on the global chip shortage earlier this year. It was called Geopolychips. Thank you. Mm, Thanks. And the takeaway from that is, you know what? You might have to craft a present for your loved one this Christmas. Get handy. Bake them some bread. Get (laughs) handy. Have a craftenoon. I guess it's also, Jen, it's good to get away from the tech gadgets, isn't it? We've spent about a year and a half looking at our phones, so... Maybe getting in there with the origami is a good thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Tomorrow on The Briefing, there's been an imperial wedding going down in Japan that has a lot of similarities to Harry and Meghan. We'll tell you all about it on tomorrow's episode. Listener.